Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So in a few minutes, uh, you will be listening to the interview that I conducted with Seth Maskett, a brilliant political scientist, and his new book, uh, Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020. Um, he's got a really interesting uh, topic in looking at the way that Democrats reconciled or or explained their loss in 2016 and how that informed what they thought about uh, the 2020 primary. Um, so it's very on topic for this podcast. Those of you who've been with us from the beginning will know that it started out as primarily 2020. And I was very much about that conversation that the party was having within the primary. Um, so it's a great kind of opportunity for us to wrap up that conversation, um, see where it took us, um, and just kind of get a firsthand view of what was going on in the party um, and the party leadership and activists at that time. Um, so stay tuned for that conversation with Seth. Um, before we go into it, though, just a couple of quick news updates for you. Um, one podcast specific news update. Don't forget that I am switching this podcast now to a twice weekly schedule, which is why you are now listening to this episode on Monday. Well, you might be listening to it any day, but it launched on Monday. Um, there will be Monday and Friday episodes from now on. Um, and the Friday episode will be for at least the next four weeks dedicated to uh, recapping the debates. Obviously, there is going to be the first all-important mm-hmm. presentation presidential debate coming up on Tuesday of this week. Um, and we will be uh, running through our reactions to that, um, a small panel, um, and I on Friday's podcast. So stay tuned for that. Um, and it should be really interesting. Um, I don't want to let this podcast uh, go out without mentioning the other piece of news that took place, which is that President Trump has announced his nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, to the Supreme Court. Um, they're going to try and ram her through as quickly as possible onto the court. Um, Ideally, from their point of view, they're going to try and get her in before election day. Um, I just want to pause and note that all of the evidence that we're seeing says that the public is wildly opposed to the idea of approving any nominee before election day. Um, And in fact, that they have said that they think the next president should choose that nominee. Um, I think Democrats are are in a really difficult position to try and um, slow down and block things happening in the Senate as much as possible. Um, I'm sure they will do their best. But this is certainly an issue that um, the American public is not on the Republicans' side in this. Um, And there will be really serious conversations about how we can start to make the court a less political entity and rebalance the effectively two seats that have been stolen from from Democrats by fair means or fouls in in recent years. Um, So that conversation will no doubt come up in future episodes, but I just wanted to note it here. So I am delighted today to welcome Seth Maskett onto the podcast. Seth is a professor of political science and the director of the Center of American Politics at the University of Denver. Um, We're talking to him today because he's got a new book out called Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020. Um, His previous books include The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Failed and How They Weaken Democracy, Um, No Middle Ground, How Informal Party Organizations Control Nominations and Polarization, lectures, etc. Uh, legislatures, not lectures. <laughs> Welcome, Seth. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. 
it's an absolute pleasure. I have to tell you that I've been reading your book um, in, in PDF format and my husband came up to me and asked me, oh, what's that you're reading? And I was explaining that it's about the kind of internal conversation the Democratic Party has been having throughout the primary process. And he just sort of went, well, that's very on topic for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> fair to say this book covers territory that we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast so I'm really excited to dig into it um to, to kick us off I think tell us could you tell us a little bit about the book um what you were hoping to do to start with I think you say in the book that you originally were were thinking you'd write a similar book about the Republicans but that didn't turn out quite that way uh, that's exactly right so basically there's there, there's a few good books out there on how um, on the decisions that parties make basically, on, on, on whom to nominate, on what stances to take, and things like that. A lot of these assume some sort of a conversation that goes on within the party, um, that the party needs to negotiate things and figure out sort of why they lost and how they need to position themselves and what sort of people they need to, to nominate next time around. And there hasn't really been a lot written on that, on that conversation. I wanted to capture that occurring. Basically, I wanted to focus on one party during one cycle uh, from the moment it loses one election to uh, the moment it prepares for the next one and just sort of capture and listen to that conversation among um, among activists and office holders and, and party leaders and, and, and just other people within a party. Um, so and as you point out, yeah, I was, um, you know, I first thought this up in 2016 and I was figuring at the time. Uh, wow, the Republican Party is going to be a really, they're going to be in a very interesting place after Donald Trump loses that year. Uh, and, you know, they've got a lot of soul searching to do because that was a, that was a crazy nomination cycle. They did things that parties don't normally do that year. They just sort of, you know, they didn't really pick a favorite. Uh, a lot of people within the party expressed a lot of concern about Donald Trump. And, but ultimately they didn't do very much to stop him. And then voters were like, yeah, this is who we want. And the party said, OK. And so they rallied around him and, uh, you know, he seemed to be losing. And so I was planning on following that soul searching period in the Republican Party about, uh, yeah, wow, how do we prevent this from happening again? Um, that that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, you You're saying you can start writing that book in November. <laughs> <laughs> it might happen. Yeah, but we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, it's, as you point out, the Republican side of the equation in 2016 absolutely defied a lot of the people's theories about how nominations take place. This idea that ultimately the sort of elites and the, the highly engaged party officials and voters and activists come together and form a consensus that, it, that, that happened in a very different way in, on the Republican side. But arguably on the Democratic side would be an example in 2016 of where that theory played out exactly as you might expect, in that the person who was perhaps favored by the party leaders wound up being the party nominee um, after, a, a, a you know, certainly the Sanders wing was influential, um, but ultimately the outcome was as you might expect. Did that change the way you approach thinking about the book? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, a lot of the, the discussion about 2016 has focused heavily on the general election that year. And, you know, people just say, wow, I didn't see that coming. And yeah, that, you know, that, that, that wasn't a surprising outcome. But for me, Donald Trump's nomination earlier in 2016 is the far more unusual mm. event that year. Um, 
you know, precisely because he's the kind of person who expresses interest in running pre for president, but never wins. Right. Yeah. Uh, he's just just, you know, a, a, a wealthy business person, a sort of dilettante who just decides, oh, yeah, you know, I think I should be president now. And usually the system just has a way of, of weeding those people out pretty quickly. Yeah. They, they Steve, don't Forbes. Do very well. Steve Forbes is a, is a great example of that. Um, and uh, and parties never nominate people like that, um, you know, particularly someone with no political experience, no military experience. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen. Um, so the fact that he was actually doing that was was really pretty striking. But as you point out, like the Democrats had in many ways a kind of normal process, like pretty much, you know, every elected official within the Democratic Party almost. Uh, in 2016 was pointing to Hillary Clinton saying that that's our person. We've we've thought about this and decided we, we want her. Um, we think she can win. We like what she stands for. Um, yet what you also saw that year um, was an interesting uh, challenge from Bernie Sanders, who I think he did better than a lot of people expected him to, mm -hmm. given that, you know, like the whole party was arrayed against him. Um, but there, I think one of the things that stood out to me about 2016, and, and I'm honestly still not quite sure what to make of it this year, is how much the candidates' personal choices mattered. Mm. Um, that is, I, you know, I, I tend to subscribe the idea that, you know, parties are real things that have power and they can make decisions. Um, but, you know, they can sort of, they can tell people to leave, but that doesn't always happen. Like, you know, yeah. the the Republicans were trying to give some signals to Donald Trump to get out of the race early on, but he just said, no, I'm going to ignore that. Um, the Democrats were really strongly telling Bernie Sanders, this is not happening. There's no reason for you to be in this race. And he showed that, he, you know, if, if you stick around, you can still win sometimes. You know, he didn't yeah. win the nomination, of course, but no one could force him to leave the race until he wanted to. Yeah. And he proved that if he wanted to, he could deal some damage to the Democratic establishment and force some changes to it. So, you know, there's there's a surprising amount of agency that individual politicians still have, even if a party can be strong. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually that that right there. One of the things you alluded to, which is the early rallying of the party behind a preferred candidate is one of the big differences in some respects between 2016 and 2012, where in 2016, as you point out, we very quickly narrowed down to two candidates. Um, in 2020, it felt like the party was trying really, really hard not to give the perception that they were pushing anyone out of the race. Do you think that was, was that kind of them trying to overlearn the lessons of 2016 a little bit? Yeah, I, th I think that was a that was a good example for my book. Uh, I have that in there about, you know, the, the book is all about basically how the lessons that you learn from the, the last election you lost can really define the process going forward for the next election. And particularly among like DNC members, yeah. uh, you know, one of the main takeaways for them from 2016 was, uh, was the, the problem was people think we were too heavy handed, yeah. um, that we created problems by trying to pick a candidate. And so we need to go out of our way to not do the main thing a party does. <laughs> which is which is nominate a candidate. And so, yeah, they, you know, they and I don't, you know, we could talk about 2016 a lot. I, they tried to give Hillary Clinton advantages. They weren't doing anything illegal. No. It was basically a matter of like, yeah, a bunch of them were endorsing her. That was yeah, all. They you know, had preferences as yeah. voters themselves that they signaled. Exactly. Um, exactly. 
So it wasn't illegitimate, but it was just, it was signaling. Exactly. And they really tried very hard not to signal in 2020 and just to, and to give a signal that this is anyone's, this is anyone's ball game. We are wide open. We are going to have 20 person debates and, uh, and, you know, whether you're in, you know, 30% of the polls or whether you're at 1% of the polls, you get to participate. We're going to put the popular kids against the unpopular kids and we're going to randomly assort them. And, um, so, you know, they really, uh, at least early on in, in, in mid 2019, they had really tried to make as open a process as possible. Right. Absolutely. It felt like every Democrat in the world was running for president that year. For a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as a result, I mean, I think we had, as you alluded to in the book, you know, what we wound up having is a great, a tremendous diversity of, of talent amongst other things. So early on, especially we had, um, minority representation. We had great geographical spread. We had, um, you know, younger and older candidates and, and, and the winnowing and, and female candidates and male candidates and the winnowing kind of wound up with two old white male candidates. Um, and you have a, an interesting take on how kind of some of the narratives around the 2016 loss might have influenced the party towards that from a, almost from an identity point of view. What's your take on that? So, you know, my take on this, and this is, comes from the, uh, the approach I took in this book. I, I, I examine a lot of different aspects of the party, but a lot of this book is about lots of interviews and conversations I had had with Democratic activists in the early primary and caucus states in, in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina, um, as well as Washington, D.C., um, to get a sense of, you know, one of the first questions I would ask people was, why do you think Hillary Clinton lost? Yeah. And that itself was, I, I would, that could be like an hour long conversation, that one question. I mean, people have a lot of theories about it. And a um, lot of trauma. A lot, a lot of trauma. Um, a lot of people who are still pretty messed up about that. Um, and, you know, so I go through, I try to like, you know, summarize all these answers and categorize them. And, you know, a lot of them turned on things like, um, there were campaign problems. You know, we, we were emphasizing the wrong areas. We didn't realize we had bad data. We were over-reliant on that. Uh, some of them focused on the candidate herself. You know, they just, you know, they just didn't think she was a very good candidate or um, there was a lot of sexism and racism in the, in, the, in the electorate and in the media that they hadn't fully realized. But, you know, there was, you know, one fairly prominent line of argument was, you know, what, what I'm calling roughly and poorly, uh, the identity politics argument, um, which was essentially this idea that um, Hillary Clinton and Democrats spent too much time focusing on, um, on underrepresented communities, on, on women, on people of color, the LGBT community, um, and others, and that that emphasis in, in speeches, in ads, in the convention, um, led working class whites to feel excluded from the Democratic coalition. And they, they responded to the candidate who was talking to them, who was Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's actually all that much evidence to support this theory, but it was one that really got into a lot of people's heads. I, you know, roughly a third of the people I spoke to voiced some version of that argument. Yeah. And, it remains a pretty common media narrative, isn't it? Very much yeah. Um, you, you saw there were a lot of columns that came out just shortly after the 2016 election that that were essentially arguing just that. There's been a number of books put out since yeah. then. 
Um, the Midwest yeah. diner phenomenon, where all the journalists in the country fled to diners in Minnesota, in in Michigan, in Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, and tried to tried to find working class white people and find out what they think. <laughs> Ex- yes, yes. Oh man, the diner stories. Yeah, okay. there, there's been a lot of that. <laughs> um, and it, it's such a peculiar phenomenon of this cycle too. I mean, um, you know, I, I can't recall a lot of. Uh, news stories, you know, trying to find the, the diehard Obama voters uh, between, <laughs> between 2009 and, and 2013. Um, and just, yeah. you know, get a sense of, wow, you know, Obama's approval rating has fallen, but you're still sticking with him. Can you explain why? Yeah, that yeah. no one did those stories. Um, but yeah, people, people like their time in the Midwestern diners, I guess. Um, and <laughs> well, I like some, ha- you know, some hash browns and pancakes. If you can put it on an expense report, why not? I'm not immune to that, you know. I mean, <laughs> I'm all for it. Uh, I'm all for the food. Um, but so, and, and what I'm arguing in the, in the book is is that, you know, if you come away from that election with the idea that um, uh, we had bad polling, or we had the wrong messaging, or we nominated the wrong candidate, those those sorts of things are fixable. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it doesn't really, you know, you you can come up with better ways of doing those things without really having to rethink what you are as a political party. Um, if the argument you come away with is we spent too much time focusing on inclusiveness and on diversity and on and on helping um, disadvantaged populations, that's essentially the Democratic Party's core mission these days. Yeah. And if you come away thinking, okay, we've done too much of that, that's that's a tough thing to internalize. That's a you know that that's that's very disorienting. And so basically deciding how much of the main thing that you care about, you're supposed to sacrifice to this idea of electability. Yeah. Um, And but it's also there's a history to this. Uh, This is something that the Democratic Party does. You can find evidence of this going back at like at least 60 years, that this is what the Democratic Party argues about every time it loses a presidential election. You know, uh, you saw this in the in the 1980s when they lost a string of presidential elections and there was always some prominent group within the party that said, well, the problem was we were listening too much to Jesse Jackson or we were mm. we were listening too much to the feminists and we need to move away from that and start nominating Southern white men. And, a la Bill Clinton. A la Bill Clinton. And, and, you know, and sort of the problem is once in a while that works yeah. and people believe it. <laughs> Um, but, but I think one thing that's changed perhaps since the 80s, or at least maybe it hasn't changed, but people are more aware of it as a structural phenomenon, is the overweighting of specific sets of voters um, in the Electoral College that, you know, perhaps it was always true to some extent, but I think it, it, the the realignment of politics and the shaping of the demographics have just on a purely mathematical basis have meant that those voters in with you know, we know that a Wisconsin voters vote just counts more than a California voters vote. So, um, you know, there is a there is a rational aspect to it that you know isn't something you want to just immediately discount. Although the question of whether that's the right way to reach those voters is is another one. But I think you know, it is something that's changed how people think a lot in the last four years, hasn't it? I yeah, I think that's totally fair. That um, and it was interesting because when. I, I was talking to people and asking them, you know, why they thought Hillary Clinton lost. I was surprised how few people said the Electoral College, like how few people said, well, she actually won the popular She did win. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But because of the way, you know, our Constitution is arranged and where people live, uh, that doesn't necessarily get us a win anymore. Interesting. Um, And but I think you're right that in many ways that logic is kind of built in 
to what people yeah. are saying, that they're just sort of acknowledging that some states simply matter more and we can't really pretend that they don't. Um, you know, it's not enough to just win the popular vote. Um, that being said, there are, you know, there's not only one way to win Wisconsin, yeah. right? Uh, there's, um, there's been some wonderful research. It's uh, Brian Schaffner, a political scientist, along with some other colleagues, and I'm blanking on everyone's names at the moment, but they did this great analysis a few years ago looking at uh, the voters who basically voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump and contrasted them with the people who voted for Obama twice and then did vote in 2016. Mm, right. So the Obama-Trump voter versus the Obama non-voter. Right. And that's two very different populations. And it, they're, they're roughly similarly sized. Uh, you know, they're not, not exactly the same size, but in theory, Democrats want to win both those people back. But it, uh, you know, you could possibly win Wisconsin or win Michigan just by winning one of those groups back. And like the Obama, Obama, uh, Trump people, um, you know, they those tend to be whites. They tend to be more moderate to conservative. Um, and whereas the Obama, Obama non-voter tend to be sort of uh, younger people of color. Um, there's, you know, theoretically different messaging, different types of candidates you could use to approach each different set of voters. But they're, you know one of those ways is not necessarily the only way to win the presidency. Yeah. It's true because I was I was struck when you were talking earlier about, you know, the fundamental nature of what the Democratic Party is um, and the fact that we are, you know, a lot of what we are is about for the purpose of being inclusive and representational. That's that's an electoral strategy too, isn't it? I mean, we aren't we are an inclusive party because we think it is right that everybody be treated equal. But it's also because we we are assembling a coalition of people that add up to an, enough of the country to sometimes win. So there's an electoral argument, isn't there, the other way that says if you disenfranchise or dishearten a huge chunk of the populations who reliably vote for you, that's that should be considered at least equally threatening potentially as losing your swing voters. Yes. Yeah. And this is this is something that the Democrat, the Democratic Party has been struggling with for a lot of years now. Um, this idea that, um, you know, it's yeah, it's not only that they care about uh, non-white voters is that they, they also see it as, as the key to their success, that you know, yeah. by championing these issues, they will win votes. Um, and that but conversely, they also want to maintain some, uh, you know, some portion of, you know, what they're calling working class white votes and that those populations may be at odds with each, with each other um, mm -hmm. to some extent that, um, that, the, that the white voters might be put off by, um, you know, explicit championing of, of people of color, that it's, yeah. it's actually it's a difficult thing for Democrats to balance sometimes. And it, uh, you know, and that's that's a, you know, a very old argument within the party. That was honestly, um, who was it? I, I mentioned it in the book. Uh, Paul Freimer, a uh, political scientist, did this wonderful book on um, uh, approaches toward uh, black voters after the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, when a number of black voters were being enfranchised. And, you know, Republicans at that time were, were you know, they were explicitly the anti-slavery party. Um, uh, black voters were flocking to the Republicans at that point. And at the same time, um, Republicans at that point almost immediately started saying, well, we can't do too much for blacks mm -hmm. because that will put off some of the white voters we also want to win over. 
Right. And so they just they we were willing to chip away a little bit, a little bit at, at some of the post-Civil War uh, rights that blacks had won uh, in the name of electability. Um, and so you you saw them navigating it in many of the same ways that Democrats have been navigating it in recent decades. That's interesting. It's fascinating to imagine the Republican Party in the post-Civil War era dealing with exactly the same type of challenges that we are. Because, of course, the, the, the makeup of the coalitions have, have flip-flopped a little bit, right. haven't they, in the past generation. So that makes complete sense that, you know, their, their problems then are our problems now. Exactly. Um, so as you as you alluded to, a part of your process for writing this book was um, it's something I, I quite envy, which was you got the chance to go and spend a lot of time in places like Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire and just talk to a bunch of folks, um, talk to party leaders, um, influential activists. So tell me about tell me about the people who are some of the people that you spoke to, like because they, they, they're real characters and, and really interesting people, aren't they? Um Yes, and honestly, I was I was really grateful for the opportunity to do this and to be able to, to uh, scare up a little funding through my university to be able to support this work. Um, and, you know, if I could do it again, I would spend even more time uh, doing that stuff. But I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, uh, I, you know, early in 2017, I did a trip to New Hampshire, um, and you know, got to spend time. You know, met with. Um, state party chair there, uh, met with a number of sort of longstanding um, uh, people who just who work on campaigns. Um, my initial approach generally was to start with political journalists who cover the, uh, you know, have spent some years covering the primaries and caucuses in those states. And, you know, just ask them, you know, here's, here's the questions I'm trying to get at. You know, yeah. here's, I, if, if I'm interested in understanding you know, who the people who focus on the presidential nominations are and trying to understand what they're thinking. Who do I need to be talking to? Right. And so I, I kind of started that way and just kind of built a kind of a, what they call a snowball sample going forward. Just anyone I talked to said, well, who else should I talk to about this sort of thing? <laughs> um, so these weren't always the same people that everyone else would talk right. to, but it's it was a word of mouth strategy. Yeah. yeah. And it was and New Hampshire and Iowa, this is. Um, political journalists have been doing this for decades yeah. and they have, there's kind of an infrastructure built up for this sort of thing. Like everyone in Iowa knows who to talk to and Iowans are, um, they're in, I mean that I can see why political reporters spend so much time covering things in Iowa. I mean, not only is it interesting, but like, it's a delight. I mean, <laughs> people there are very friendly and outgoing. They have a lot of campaign events that are, you know, everything's outdoors and, and the food and the beer and the coffee is actually surprisingly good. And uh, and and people are just happy to talk to you about these things. Um, uh, you know, New Hampshire is is much more New Hampshire. You know, people are. <laughs> um, I'm from New England, so I know what oh, you mean. Oh, there you go. <laughs> a little more solitary, but also yeah. at the same time, like um, I had some really good conversations with people there uh, and got, you know, like an interesting mix of approaches. You know, I I'd, I'd, had talked to. Um, this one gentleman there who, uh, you know, just a guy who gives a lot of money to Democratic candidates who was just like, and I asked him, like, basically what he's looking for in a nominee, he says, and he says, basically, I don't care. Like, his his idea was, um, I don't care if this person agrees with me on, on almost anything. We need to win very badly. We need mm -hmm. to get Donald Trump out, and we need to get him out by a lot. Um, because he has, he's inflicted a lot of damage and it's going to take a lot of extra votes in the Congress, um, to, to be able to repair some of the things he's done. 
Um, so he was very open ended and just be, and and just saying, you know, uh, you know, I'll surrender a lot of things I care about for a win right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that that same day I spoke to a, a woman who's a state legislator there um, in in uh, in I believe in Manchester, um, who was saying, uh, yes, I definitely want to win, but it is important. Uh, it's it's been important to me to see a woman in the White House, um, and this is uh, you know given where you know the, the status of women's rights right now are. There's a lot of gains that we have made that are really under under fire right now, and I'm not going to give up my advocacy for a woman just because I want to win. Um, Interesting, you know, yeah. not necessarily that those are automatically opposed to each other, yeah. but she was like, I won't let Donald Trump take away the thing I care about. Um, it's not worth it to me to, you know, to to lower myself to his level. Um, things are still important and I'm going to fight for them. And so it was interesting to hear that that kind of that, that kind of range of, um, you know, uh, viewpoints about it. And plus, there were just, you know, a number of characters in different places. I, uh, I had a wonderful meeting with um, uh, the owners of the uh, uh uh, La Quercia, which is a, uh, uh, a company outside of Des Moines, Iowa. And you know, they're, they're, I think now the biggest American producer of, um, of, of prosciutto and their yeah. food is excellent. And so they, and they wanted to show off the food in addition to talk politics to me. So it just, <laughs> we had just like this huge plate of cured meats while we were talking. And I have this, uh, you can hear my, my audio of the of the of the recording where I'm just like <laughs> shoving my mouth full of food and it was it was delicious. <laughs> it was amazing that you got grant funded prosciutto. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I'm very I'm very fortunate scholar that way. <laughs> um, I'm curious. You talk about this this dichotomy between which I think nicely summed up a lot of voters' calculations of you know how much do I cling to wanting somebody who's ideologically similar? How much do I think about representation? As this woman you were alluding to talked about, and how much do I just just want to win at all costs? I'm curious if you spotted any ideological. Um, uh, clustering there, whether, you know, if you think about, I don't know that it is necessarily the symbol, but if you think about perhaps there's a Sanders wing of the party that are very passionately motivated by a set of ideological beliefs and, and a kind of systematic structural reform, and then perhaps the more mainstream Democrat, uh, or not mainstream, but sort of moderate traditional Democrats, did you feel that one or the other group was um, was more win-inflected or more ideology-inflected? You know, it was it was interesting to talking to the the Sanders people. I did. Um, they were, you know, it, it was interesting. They they tended to be of the mind that, um, you know, as they say, Bernie would have won. Yeah. Um, you know, I heard that. Been, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Had he been nominated in twenty sixteen, that that he would yeah. have won. And and most of them, they did, you know, I tried to engage them a little on that, and they, they didn't really want to fight about it. They was like, look, yeah. this is what I believe. I obviously can't prove that today. Um, yeah. And. They were very early on for Bernie getting the nomination in 2020 as well. And it wasn't even that much of a discussion. Um, It was, um, you know, it was very much, you know, we 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 have full confidence that that this is the right way to win these things. And so they were they were all in for the next time around. Um, And so was it because they believed that his his positions were more electorally appealing or was it because they 
had those positions and therefore kind of wishful thinking wanted to believe they were. I'm just curious, you know, if you have a thought about whether which came first. Well, to some extent, they they were also to some extent clinging to this narrative about identity politics, right. which is um, uh, not not exactly in the same way as a lot of other people were, but in the sense that um, we need to reach these working class whites in the Midwest. Right. And that um, Hillary Clinton's way of doing that proved unsuccessful, whereas the way Bernie Sanders, um, you know, uh, you know, his his speaking, his his sort of economic populism argument would be a more successful approach there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they'll and they'll point to some, you know, some examples from from different primaries and, uh, you know, the fact that that Bernie Sanders does count among his supporters a number of, you know, a, a a number of working class white people who are you know, just feel like he's speaking their language. Now, whether that would actually translate to a general election victory, I, I, I think is more doubtful. Um, but it, it, you know, it's, it, it is an argument that they, you know, that they clung to and they, you know, the, the existing evidence they felt backed them up on that. So there, there, there wasn't on that side, there wasn't really that much of a, a of a change from the interpretation of, of 2016. In many ways, the, you know, for, for Sanders supporters, the, the outcome of that election ratified what they believed all along that, mm -hmm. um, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't appealing to the right voters to win. Right. So obviously Sanders, again, just as 2016, Sanders was the last, last non-winner standing in the competition. Um, but ultimately, um, and, you know, perhaps predictably, the party went with Joe Biden, a former vice president, um, the person who was leading in the primary polls from the beginning, from from long before, even before he entered the race. And the person who, you know, although polls shifted around a little bit kind of when the when the when the race started, um, seemed to be steadily ahead. So is this a question of the party decided early on and there just was a lot of kind of process we had to go through before people settled on that or was something else happening? So as I describe it, it was that the party did decide for Biden. It yeah. was not a it was not an overwhelming consensus decision in the way that, say, the party had for Hillary Clinton in 2016 or or for Al Gore in 2000 or the way that Republicans settled on uh, George W. Bush in 2000. Um, it was not you know, it, it certainly wasn't unanimous. Uh, but by the end of 2019, you can really see like those who make endorsements were were overwhelmingly endorsing Biden. Um, that people who you know uh, basically like party aligned donors, people who give money and are and are tied to the Democratic Party, they were leaning heavily Biden at that point. You know, you know yeah. all the indicators were going that way, and uh, the the way I was I was watching the. Um, the events of 2019, you know, all the all the debates that went on that year and, and the other campaign activities is that, you know, it was it was becoming clear that the party was looking, you know, they were going with, you know, the, the, the metaphor I use is, you know, they, they, they Hillary Clinton was new Coke. They had decided new Coke was a failure. Um, so they were trying to get back to Coke classic and then, you know, <laughs> basically decide uh, who that candidate was. And uh Biden, from the moment he jumped in, he was the leader in the polls, you know, simply because people knew him. They, they, they had, you know, he had a good reputation within the party. Um, and as long as he wasn't doing egregiously bad, 
um, it seemed like the party was going to stick with him. Mm. You know, there was and there honestly not very much shook up those those polls during that year. You know, there was that yeah. one moment in the first debate where Kamala Harris really did some damage to him, um, yeah. you know, pointing out his, uh, you know, saying that when he you know, brags about getting along with segregationists in the Senate. That's actually a very hurtful thing. And mm. uh, his stances on busing were bad. And that briefly did some damage to his poll standings. But yeah. uh, he bounced back within a week or two. And, uh, you know, so and uh, as long as he didn't really like heavily tarnish himself, he didn't have to do extremely well in the in the in the debates, you know, but as long as he, he was he was more or less holding his own. Democrats ultimately felt like they would they could go with him. Yeah. And I think that that's really what we saw. It was a it was a he'll do strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) I'm I'm curious your take on this. I have a sort of theory that I've been batting around in the back of my mind about kind of the party's behavior during the primary, um, which is almost like the you could call it the hoping for an Obama strategy, which was let's let everybody who has a chance run and let's. I think people are very, people in my generation at least, are very aware of 2008 when there was Hillary Clinton at that time also seemed like a shoo-in. Um, but this person emerged and they consolidated support behind them and um, generated a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. And then um, Obama wound up winning the primary. And I feel like part of what was happening was there was a lot of hope that someone might do that. That, you know, whether it's a Pete Buttigieg or an Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris, indeed, that that somebody might start rallying, sort of catching some lightning in a bottle. And in which case, everybody was standing ready to flood behind that person. But they had the Joe Biden as a fallback option. That's my theory about what was happening. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? That in many ways, that was how I was watching this, too. And I I was surprised how little of that there was like, I, you know, I, I had my eyes on Cory Booker for a while. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, kept expecting him to have yeah. a moment just because he's so good on stage and, you know, so impressive and interesting. He is. He is. He has. I mean, he's, he's got a good speaking presentation style. Um he is, you know, not particularly radical in his views. He's actually fairly, you know, mainstream Democratic in his views, um, has some good experiences to draw back on. And importantly, he like he had some endorsements. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were there were some people in the party who clearly liked him. And it was just it just sort of seemed like, well, inevitably, he'll have a moment. You know, there'll be yeah. some point where he yeah. has a little bump in the public opinion polls and we'll see what happens then. And that never really happened. Yeah. Um which and it's and it's hard to point to anything that he did that that made that fail to happen. I, I watched him, you know, I watched him in a number of campaign events and thought he was quite good. Yeah, um, he was he was very yeah. strong on a lot of the debates. You know, he had he yep. had good moments in the debates, which, unlike Kamala Harris's moment that you referred to, never really translated into anything. Exactly. And <laughs> and he had a good campaign team. I mean, I know some of the people who mm-hmm. you know, as you say. Who, who leads his campaign, really smart people. Some of some of the party's, you know, most effective organizers and activists were behind them. Um, they just couldn't turn it into anything. So it's interesting. And so I think you had a couple of things operating there. You, uh, one was, I, I think, this kind of uh, this legacy from 2016, where um, I, I think a fair number of Democrats were nervous about nominating an African-American mm-hmm. uh, uh, to run against Trump. And I think that hurt him. And also the fact that you had a lot of um, black voters within the party, particularly in South Carolina, had decided early on they wanted Joe Biden. Yeah. 
And, you know, that would have been a, a great base of support for Booker. And that just um, he could not pull them away from Biden, even when he even when he was you know attacking Biden fairly, fairly directly. Um, most black voters were sticking with Biden. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I, we haven't talked about Elizabeth Warren specifically yet. Um, who's a who's a you know, we talked about Sanders and, and, and Biden, um, the kind of. The, the third person, the, the third place finisher, if you want to say that in this, was probably Elizabeth Warren, although she also is somebody who I think underperformed a lot of people's expectations. Um, and and so she at some point in the in the race, she was trying to position herself as almost like the I'm the structurally I, I'm the radical that the mainstream of the party can support. Right. So she was trying to say, I'm the, I, you know, I'm the person like Sanders who sees the need for big structural reform, but actually I'm going to do that by having lots of really, really detailed policies and by working really, really well with my colleagues in the Senate and across Congress, because I can deliver the things that Sanders is doing. And that message did not seem to, to please anyone particularly. It didn't quite break through. What do you think about that? Yeah. So it, where I think she's a she's a great example. Um, uh, as I like to describe um, party nominations, I, I think I do this in the book. I do this when I teach. Is that you know a, a lot of journalistic accounts of presidential nominations is that it, it's a contest. It's the it's the set of tasks that a bunch of candidates have to do. You know whether it's it's raising money or debating or you know flipping pancakes in new hampshire or you know eating steak <laughs> eating, and, eating a and, corn dog <laughs> exactly you have to do all these things and whoever does the most of them the best it becomes the nominee and no that doesn't that doesn't happen <laughs> it's not so much a contest as it's a decision that a party is making and they're not you know they're not ignoring these campaign events but they're only part of the information that they're that they're looking at um and so, you know, when you think back to the all the campaign stuff of 2019 and 2020, I, I don't think there's almost any of them that Joe Biden was the best at. Mm. Um, but he's a nominee today. Um, whereas conversely, I, you know, I I would say Elizabeth Warren was simply the best candidate, mm. uh, you know, and that's you know, I'm, I don't have any sort of scientific way of, of indicating that. But yeah. in terms of someone who she, could she hit all her marks, <laughs> she hit all her marks, someone who could give like a rousing Speech and had enthusiastic supporters and uh, new policy and could defend and advance a set of policies and could debate anyone. I mean, she's just she's just very good at it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's not enough. Um, that's that that doesn't get you a win necessarily. And yeah. I think in particular, she was hurt, you know, again, consistent with this book. She was hurt by the legacy of 2016. Mm. Um, where a lot of Democrats took away from that, you know, what they saw in her was um, an outspoken feminist who was really good at policy. And yeah. they're like, oh, this looks familiar. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, I think we need to move in a different direction. Yeah. And even the people who maybe who would themselves be naturally inclined to, to love an outspoken mm -hmm. feminist who's really good at policy <laughs> might have. You know, I, I think I've seen it referred to somewhere, maybe even in your book, as secondhand misogyny, right? Yes. I genuinely like this woman, but I am worried that other people won't like her. Exactly. And therefore, I won't support her. Exactly. That's the, the kind of the, the pernicious nature of, of elector, uh, electorability, electability, excuse me, yeah. um, is, is the idea, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I just <laughs> think everyone else is so that therefore we can't nominate this person. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that brings me up to a, a, a really big question that I had from, from reading your book, which is, um, I'll say, I'll read you, I'll actually read a quote from the conclusion of your book. Um, you say, those who came out of 2016 worried that the party lost that contest because it nominated a liberal woman, essentially won the post-election narrative battle. They got a moderate white man into the top ballot position. Should that formula prove inadequate, other factions within the party may find themselves ascendant in the next cycle. My question to you is, does that mean that the converse is true, that you would not expect those other forces in the party to have influence or to be ascendant or powerful in a Biden administration? How how would this conversation and concern about where the party's priorities should be in terms of representation and electability translate into a governing agenda? Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, should, um, you know, should Democrats end up in the White House next year? Um, you know, just what that governing style looks like. Uh, one of the things that's been um, interesting to watch is how Joe Biden has behaved since becoming the nominee or since, or since becoming the de facto nominee in the spring. Um, he is, I don't think he was nominated for this. I think he was nominated basically because people believed he was electable. Yeah. Um, but is that he has this very coalitional orientation, um, which is, you know, for a for a party politician, that is that is a great uh, characteristic. I mean, you know, parties like someone who thinks in terms of 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 coalitions. He, you know, almost immediately reached out to some of the Sanders people and they started talking about ways of, you know, coming up with a, you know, compromising on on a number of, of campaigning issues and policy issues and who would sort of fill a. Uh, a Biden cabinet. Um, and then, you know, in many ways that that's, that's a healthy orientation. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, people on the left within the democratic party, the, uh, you know, Sanders folks, AOC, uh, Warren and others, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, enthusiastic Biden people, but they see him first of all, as someone who can win. And second of all, as someone with whom they can do business. That if they can demonstrate their numbers, if they can demonstrate that they represent a big chunk of of the Democratic Party, he will he will listen to them. Mm. Um, he won't just shut them out because he's he's somewhat more moderate. I mean, a, a kind of a remarkable thing about Biden, if you if you look back on what's nearly a 50 year career, is that he has been relentlessly at the center of the Democratic Party ideologically. And, and <laughs> Wherever party, it is, he's yeah. in the middle of it. <laughs> and that party has changed a lot over 50 years. Um, and so he's, I think he's good at reading the room. He, I think he, he gets a sense. He just, he wants to understand who's to his left, who's to his right, and sort of where he needs to be uh, to represent that party. Um, and that's, uh, you know, in some ways that's, that's fairly healthy for governing. Um, so there'll, there'll be a lot of push and pull within yeah. such a white house, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the the left has they have an in they have they have an entree into that. I mean, I think not to not to go into what your other book might have been like um, on the Republican side of things. But um, one thing that Democrats like myself have observed about the Republican Party um, in recent years that's made governing difficult has been their unwillingness to engage constructively in that kind of process that you're talking about, where I think Biden historically. So, you know, Biden back in his Senate days was accustomed to kind of starting from the middle of his party and then reaching out across the aisle to sort of the middle of the Republican Party and trying to split the difference somewhere there. 
that negotiation strategy doesn't seem to be available to us anymore in that it's hard to find Republicans who will constructively engage in that kind of purpose. And the logic of that seems to me that that Biden would wind up moving to the left just by virtue of how his coalition would then form, because if there is no right-leaning coalition available to you, then the Sanders people become a lot more important because you need to you need to rebalance along those lines. Um, does that? Do, how do you think about that as a as a strategy, as a or at least as a, a thought? And do do Sanders people and do the kind of people on the left of the party that you've been talking to um, do they see things in that in that way? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, it's, uh, I'm trying to get a, a better sense of where, um, you know, how Biden is, is seeing, uh, you know, his old Republican friends in the Senate. Yeah. Um, and how much of that, you know, like he, I think he and Lindsey Graham used to consider themselves friends and I, yeah. I, I doubt they do today. No, I can't um, imagine that they'd yeah. sit together and cut a deal right over, over, right. Like, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And, you know, one of my, you know, I, I think a, a, an initial concern I had of, you know, a, a, a Biden as president was that he would spend a lot of time trying to reach out to Republicans, you know, much the way that Obama did his first year in office, um, who would ultimately just, you know, would never give him a vote at all. And then, you know, he would actually bend a lot of policy toward their views only to be rewarded with zero votes. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that that's less of a concern, um, just because in many ways he's he's been spurned by these people right. who, who he's he learned his lessons. Um, now he may be chalking that up to just oh well, this is simply this is stuff people say during a fall campaign, mm -hmm. and maybe once we actually get in the room and start governing again, things will be different. But it's you know it's hard not to see the uh, you know Republican Senate as as having changed somewhat and just becoming um, a lot less interested in, in working across party lines and uh, in, in actually negotiating with Democrats. So, yeah, I, I think he sees, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting just to look at, at how, how left Biden has moved yeah. on a number of things. He, you know, he doesn't embrace any of the, uh, the big slogans. He doesn't go out there and, 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 you know, chant about Medicare for all or yeah. uh, defunding ICE or anything like that. Green New but, Deal. Right. But in terms of the actual policies he'll champion, I mean, he's he has moved a lot on issues related to climate change. He's moved a yeah. lot on Black Lives Matter. Um, and, uh, you know, I think because he recognizes that, you know, that that's where the energy of his party mm -hmm. is right now. And, you know, as you point out, the you know, some of the people more more conservative than he is are simply no longer talking to him. Um, yeah. They're just not even interested in negotiating anymore. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the outcomes, I would argue, of the primary has been to brand Joe Biden as possibly more moderate than he even is, um, because he was the moderate in the primary. And I'm just, I, I'm just aware that that feels like, in some ways, a, a bit of a sweet spot to be in, because if you are positioned as being a moderate Democrat, no matter what you do, which I think is kind of a brand that's been sunk in now, he's he's been able to adopt policies that if he had had them during the primary, I think he would have been challenged on, like his like his climate change his climate change plan that he adopted alongside Sanders people, um, and not kind of get tagged with it because the the, the messaging is already set. So, um, was that intentional on Biden's part? Do we think, or was it, was did he just luck out? <laughs> 
I mean, I, I think that was wise. He, he he was presenting himself as a relatively moderate candidate in a field where a lot of people really were, were fighting to be the progressive. Yeah. I mean, you know, even though a lot of those debate stages, you know, not only Medicare for all, I mean, people were, you know, very open about like, we need reparations for slavery. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that was definitely, that was not a mainstream Democratic position a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and Biden never really said no to anything like that, but he just, he just didn't engage. He's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, just, I'm, it's not, not my thing. <laughs> I'm not, it's, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to embrace this label one way or the other. Um, and I think that frees him up somewhat as, as the nominee, you know, I think had it been a closer contest, had he been more worried about it, he might've had to do something like that. But, yeah. um, he, you know, as the, as the nominee, he's somewhat freer to, um, you know, em embrace the thing that that a lot of primary voters were enthusiastic about him in the first place and that he didn't seem particularly radical yeah. and that he could win over some some more moderate voters. Um, and that, so that's that that puts him in a fairly good position. Yeah. So I guess that leads me up to my my kind of final question or the thing I'm curious about at the end of the interview is you spoke to a lot of people um, early on in the primary um, leading into Iowa and New Hampshire. Have you spoken to those people again since the outcome of the of of the primary, and and how, what are they thinking and feeling now? Uh, you know, honestly, I haven't all that much. Um, I, I I more or less stopped. The, the whole point of this book is that I, I really wanted to focus on what a party does up until people start voting. Yeah. And at that point, nominations kind of take on a life of their own, and. Um, it was interesting because that wasn't entirely true this year. Like February yeah. was a really interesting month. Yeah. Well, uh, and Iowa was a disaster. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, Iowa was nuts. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, the fact, you know, you know, the, the old idea was that, you know, there's 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 three tickets out of Iowa. There's two tickets out of New Hampshire. Well, you yeah. know, Biden didn't get any of those tickets. He's still the nominee today. <laughs> yeah. Um, and. It was surprising to me how much how much focus there was on those early contests, and then how little they ended up mattering. Yeah. Um, and I think in I many think that ways, goes back to my Obama strategy, right? My my theory is that everybody thought you know Iowa, New Hampshire is a chance for someone to be the Obama, mm -hmm. and if that doesn't happen, then we, then we default back to Biden. <laughs> yes, I think I think that's right, and I think there was a lot of sort of earlier. Um, uh, discounting of of the early states. You know, people were pointing out this is this is such a huge and diverse field of candidates. And maybe, you know, the, the extremely white rural voters of Iowa and New Hampshire um, uh, are not the best judges of this. And, you know, there was you know, it, it was entirely possible that each of those contests was going to produce a different winner. And then there'd, there'd sort of be no way for the party to converge on anyone. Um, so, you know, in many ways they said, you know, it was fine, you know, Sanders and, and Buttigieg like demonstrated some skills there and they, they clearly had their supporters within the party, but it, that, that wasn't enough to win. And the thing that, that Biden's team had been saying all along was that, uh, we really shouldn't say anything until, a, you know, a large number of black voters are given a chance to weigh in. And that always looked like it was going to lean Biden. And that, that turned out to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, listen, Seth, thank you so much for your time. Have you got a few minutes to just play the gut check game before we go? Let me check on something real quick here. Uh, 
Yes, I can talk for a few minutes. <laughs> a few minutes. All right, well, we'll just finish up. So quickly, for those who are unfamiliar with the podcast, basically what we're doing here is I have placed some slips of paper into my trusty Red Sox baseball cap that are quotes or sayings or headlines heard from around the campaign trail. I'm just going to read them out, and then Seth and I will just check our guts and, and quickly react to what people are saying. Um, the first one here I've got, this is a headline from a Financial Times article. Um, and the headline reads, investors anticipate Joe Biden election win. Study by Servation suggests Donald Trump victory could jolt stocks higher. Is this a recent headline? Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> uh, okay, so you want me to give you a yeah, gut check on that? What, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, first of all, we spend a lot of time, you know, a lot of my book is about, uh, you know, people trying to draw lessons from these incredibly complex sets of events and, yeah. and try and read narratives out of things that actually don't necessarily have an easy narrative. Um, if, if that's true in politics, boy, is that true in stock markets, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, people are always trying to anthropomorphize the stock market into like this, this, this one person who like, I don't like this candidate, therefore I'm going to lower stock prices today. And that's just <laughs> yeah. not really a thing that happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, well, this, uh, yeah, the stocks are doing some crazy stuff lately, I have to say, though. I don't understand how the stock market is rising when we're all locked in our homes and a global pandemic is happening. It makes no sense to me. And the economy is the economy is tanking. So somebody who's yeah, that, smarter than me is going to have to explain that to me. That, that feels really detached as far it's, as I'm concerned. And yeah. uh, but also there's there's always, you know, there, there's some Wall Street folks who simply like want Donald Trump to win. Um, and, you know, fine, they like his economic policies or they like his Wall Street approach or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but still, occasionally they'll float a theory like, uh, you know, if Biden gets in, the markets will will tank or something like that. Right. <laughs> uh, so I think it's, it's a way of trying to make a political argument and, and using the economy as leverage. But, um, you know, I think one of the one of the good lessons of the last few years, I mean, if you, if you look at like Obama's second term economy, just in terms of like job growth and economic growth and things like that. It looks shockingly similar to the first few years of the Trump administration. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, and then the stock market growth was looking pretty similar. You know, the, the idea that, that all these events turn on the behavior of whoever the, the sitting president is, I think, is mm. kind of. eh. <laughs> Although Donald Trump likes to think they do, don't they? That's oh, well, only yeah. I can fix it. <laughs> yeah, which is it's just a strange thing for someone who had economic growth and then a sudden recession for to be arguing, but whatever. <laughs> whatever. Here's here's another one. This is a another headline. This is the headline of an editorial that was published this week in the Guardian newspaper, um, and this is right up your street because this is uh, touching on some of the things we talked about before. The headline reads, Joe Biden is repeating the same mistakes that cost Hillary Clinton the election. Biden is trying to woo unhappy Republicans when he should be mobilizing hundreds of thousands of Democrats. Eh, fine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's always got to be there's always got to be some of that. Um, and, you know, there's there's some within the party. I don't know if that that comes from like a, a Sanders supporter or something like that, who just who who believe that that the way to win elections is to to energize the base yeah. um, rather than, you know, try and convert people in the middle. Um, and, you know, yeah, there, there may be something there, though. There's actually a fair amount of political science evidence suggests that, uh, you know, that it, it's the more moderate candidates that tend to do better. 
yeah. that, you know, if you if you go more to the extremes, yeah, you'll excite your base, but you'll also terrify the other side. And there's actually there's a there's a higher percentage in, in the middle um, that, you know, despite all the negative polarization we're seeing and, you know, despite all the base activation strategies we see, there actually is still a role for, you know, converting some moderate voters out there and. Yeah. You know, just you know, comparing the polls now to to what the election results look like in 2016 yeah. suggests that hey, there, there's there's some of that going on. <laughs> I mean, I guess the sweet spot is ideally what you want is a moderate voter that excites the base, right? <laughs> Which is kind of you know that that's almost the Obama model. It's also the you could say the Bill Clinton model, right? So it, you want somebody who's moderate enough that it can win over persuadables, but also has something about them that um, that makes member core members of the coalition want to get out and vote. Yeah, there was something kind of I mean something kind of remarkable about Obama in that um, you know people saw whatever they wanted to see in him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, moderates listened to what he said and he said, well, he doesn't sound particularly radical. This is great. I can get behind this. And, yeah. you know, liberals imagined, you know, he was going to remake the world. And, you know, that just sort of worked for everyone. It's a uh, magic trick. <laughs> I mean, it helped that he was running against a really unpopular Republican Party in the middle of, a, of an economic catastrophe and an unpopular war. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he had everyone from you know, Cornell West to Colin Powell on his team. And uh, that, that I think Cornell West was with him. Um, but, you know, so he, he was able to get this 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 really big uh, coalition behind him. Um, it, it, there's a, you know, a little bit of uncertainty can be can be great for that. I guess the problem with that is that, you know, now Democrats have that sort of problem that Republicans had for years, which they, they were always looking for the next Ronald Reagan. Mm. Um, mm. You know, and every, no one measured yeah. up because like, yeah. they were decided that, you know, that person just had magical powers and, uh, yeah, hundred uh, percent. It. It's like the Democrats are waiting for the electoral saver savior, right? Like the uh -huh. second coming of our electoral savior. Where, where is he? Where is she? <laughs> when is she coming? <laughs> um, Here's another one. I, I, I think I had to include this quote. Um, this is a Trump quote, probably the quote of the week in many respects, and troublingly so. Um, this is part of his answer when he was asked whether he would commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Um, he says, I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. Get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very you'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There will be a continuation. Yeah. Uh... I mean, there's there's no other way to describe that as like incredibly disturbing. Right. And, uh, you know, you never know exactly with him how much is bluster and, and how much he'll actually do. But I mean, that is the sort of language that's Mussolini. That's Putin. That's someone who very much intends to be the next president, whether he wins the election or not. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, you know, for me, what is, is you know, is always the, the more potentially disturbing is less what he will say or do and more what, uh, you know, sort of others in the Republican coalition will do around that. You know, will um, would Republican senators and members of Congress, would they back him up on that uh, yeah. after the election? Would they just say, well, there's, you know, uh, even if it looked like Joe Biden won, they said, well, there's enough questions that we really need to look into that. And that's all it takes for. Yeah. Um, for essentially a, a presidential win to be delegitimized, de um, it won't take much for you know some personalities at Fox News to run with this. Yeah, um, and you know at you know probably the best case scenario is uh, in that situation is that you know 
Joe Biden gets into office, but there's a lot of people in the country who who don't think he's legitimately the president. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, more, you know, there are darker scenarios where you have two people claiming to be president on January 20th. Um, and, you know, some of whom have the military behind them and some of whom don't. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that or where you have uh, state legislators uh, appointing uh, members of the electoral people to the electoral college who are not how the the majority of their voters in their state voted. Um, there's a lot of ways this could go really badly. It's uh, not good. It's it's not good. And uh, you know, I, I I think we're we spend a lot of time. I think because you know polls help us with this assessing like what is the likelihood of Trump winning or losing. Um, you know, I I think the odds of him losing very badly are probably higher than him winning at this point. Yeah. And I don't know how to assess that. I don't know. And, or, yeah. you know, how to assess the likelihood of real damage occurring to, to American democracy, but it's, it's, it's certainly out there. Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many X factors in this election, as you, as you allude to polls traditionally do a good job of giving us a sense of where the, where the election stands, but we've never in modern times held an election in the middle of a global pandemic and mm -hmm. ongoing racial unrest and an economic collapse mm -hmm. and militias on the streets of the of the United States and a president who, you know, as we've just been talking about, doesn't necessarily respect the democratic process. This is unprecedented territory. I mean, I don't think we can necessarily assume that the data we have about people's voting intent will tell us what the outcome of the election will be. And that's a very troubling thing to, to think. I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's, it's, it's extremely troubling. And, um, you know, I think as a, as a political scientist, I, I think a lot of us, you know, are struggling with what exactly is our role here. I mean, mm -hmm. it's fine to just issue warnings and just say this is not healthy. Um, but, you know, what exactly we do when things fall apart, if they fall apart, um, yeah. it's it's not entirely clear. That certainly wasn't they didn't train me for that when I got my Ph.D. No, it's funny that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I think I've got one last quote that we can quickly do, which touches exactly on what we've just been talking about and presents at least one possible uh, response to the president. It's This is General Mark A. Milley, or Miley, I'm not sure. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he says, in the event of a dispute over some aspect of the elections, by law, U.S. courts and the U.S. Congress are required to resolve any disputes, not the U.S. military. I foresee no ro role for the U.S. armed forces in this process. Worrying that he had to say that. <laughs> yes, uh, it's it's one of those things. I've seen uh, several statements like that uh, from uh, from different leadership uh, throughout the country. It's like I appreciate that they're saying that. It really bothers me that they had to. Um, and at the same time, you know, like you can imagine a circumstance where the military really isn't given a choice mm -hmm. but to weigh in um, if. Um, you know, if Biden, you know, if you have two people claiming to be president yeah. uh, on, on January 20th and one of them issues an order to the military, As you um, say. Uh, that is, you know, that is a, a moment in which the military does have to determine, you know, shouldn't have to because the Constitution yeah. is pretty plain on that, but um, has to make a determination of whose orders to follow. And that is, you know, we're not a democracy at that point. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's that's a that's a 
terrible thing to have to watch and to, to live through. And it's a terrible, you know, set of choices for uh, the military to have to make, which really, you know, we've designed a system where they, they should not be making that. But, you know, if anything, I think we're seeing, you know, just uh, this, this idea of American exceptionalism that uh, America is not exempt yeah. uh, uh, from... Um, from the problems that have, have plagued uh, democracies all over the world. It's frightening. Well, I, I look forward to your next book, which it sounds like might be pursuing the, you know, in re-interviewing the same people from the caves in the wilderness where they're <laughs> fighting the rebellion against the military junta that has taken over what used to be the United States of America. So um, hopefully that will not be the next time we speak uh, is me catching up on that story. Um, but it's been great to talk to you. And I really, I really appreciated your time. It was fabulous. I, I really appreciate this conversation. A great set of questions. And I, I really enjoyed it. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. If you have not voted your absentee ballot yet, what are you waiting for? <laughs> there is early voting available in many states and absentee balloting in uh, almost every state. Um, and in many states, uh, there is now very easy, excuse-free absentee voting um, available to you. If you have not yet requested and received your ballot, you should have received your ballot by now. Um, you can get some help and support on that at votefromabroad.org if you're an American overseas, or go to vote.org for further voting information. I have already voted my ballot, and I can tell you it feels amazing. If you've voted already and you're looking for something else that you can do to support the cause of a progressive majority in all aspects of U.S. government, I would urge you to go to our Democratically 2020 fundraising page at actblue.com slash donate slash democratically, and uh, you can see there um, a fund that I have set up that will fund the presidency presidential race for Biden, but also the top Senate races, the um, and the flippable states um, fund, which is aimed at uh, down ballot races in winnable states around the country. I should let you know, as always, that there is no one else, no other organization or entity is supporting this podcast. It is just me all by my lonesome here speaking to you and wishing you a very happy week until I speak to you on Friday. <laughs>